are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. We're here together on another Thursday afternoon, and I do want to add a couple of things. First of all, I want to give a welcome to our TWR360 audience TWR, of course, is Trans World Radio 360, which reaches an impressive global audience through their shortwave radio ministry. But then again, of course, in our modern age, they have a great online presence, and that's at the website TRW, no, TWR 360, Trans World Radio 360. So welcome to our international audience from TWR360. And as well, I want to say something that I'm going to repeat again a little bit later that we have a giveaway today. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we did a giveaway marking our 50,000th subscriber to the YouTube channel. Uh, We enjoyed it so much, we decided, well, let's make it a little more of a regular thing. So today, we're going to give away a print copy of my Gospel of John commentary. It's, I don't know, 430 pages or so of a written commentary on the Gospel of John. Now, I need to advise you of this. This is something, first of all, that's self-published. It's not like it's published by a major Christian publisher or anything like this. I've published it myself, which really anybody could do if they just had the desktop publishing program and, you know, paid the money to get self-published. And I also need to let you know that one of the reasons why it's self-published, certainly not the only reason, but one of the reasons is is because this is the exact same content that is available online at EnduringWord.com and at BlueLetterBible, blb.org. The online commentary that I have is virtually exactly the same. There may be a few updates and changes along the way, but it's the same as what you would get in the print commentary. However, We prepare these print commentaries once we're sort of happy with where a commentary through a book of the Bible has been, and it's been um, proofread and edited. Then we do put it into print because we just know that there's some segment of the population that prefers a commentary in print, ink, and on a page than they do looking at it online. So we're going to give away one of these today to one of you. Here's what you have to do to enter into today's contest or competition or whatever you want to say. First thing you have to do is make sure that you're subscribed to our YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribed. Number two, comment in the side chat right now on where you're viewing from. Of course, we can see your screen name, but let us know where you're viewing from. Uh, At least if you're in the United States, it can give us the state. The city's fine, too. If you're international, we love hearing the country and maybe even the city where you're viewing in from. And then finally, you got to stick around to the end of today's uh, video because when we announce the winner in the last 10 minutes or so of our time together today, that's when we'll reach out to you and say, uh, email us at a particular email address that we'll give you, and then you'll get the address to send you the book. One more thing about this giveaway. If you are in the U.S. and you order this, I'll sign it for you and write something. If you want me to write in the beginning, I I will. I'll sign it for you. If it's outside of the U.S., uh, then we send it directly from our on-demand printer, 
and uh, it won't go through that. There's reasons for that, but I won't get into that today. Okay, now let's talk about this. Which Bible translation, this is our lead question today, and it comes from Kim. Which Bible translation is good for beginners? And let me read you Kim's question. She says this, I discovered you on YouTube by watching some of your Q&A videos. I would like to read and study the Bible for the first time, but I'm not sure which translation is best. Which translation do you recommend for beginners? Thank you for your time. Well, Kim, thank you for your question. I saw that question today. I thought that's a great question. Let's make it our lead question today, and then we'll just go ahead and respond to what comes in on the side chat. That's really how it works. We start off with a lead question, and then we just go to the side chat. You write your questions in the side chat, and our moderator, Devin, takes a look at your question, and um, he tries to select the ones that we think might have the most broad interest among our viewers, and those are the ones that we prioritize. Okay, back to Kim's question. Which Bible translation is good for beginners or those who are new to the Christian faith? Okay, there are many different kinds of Bible translations, a lot of different translations out there, and there are different types of Bible translation. Some Bible translations are more literal. Others are more of a paraphrase. But understand, this is a thing of degree. It's impossible to perfectly translate a lot of text from one language to another. You know, you can get pretty close to perfect sometimes if you're just talking about a word or two, but anytime the text gets very long, even into a paragraph or more, it's impossible to get a perfect translation from one language to another. There's always some nuance. There's always some range of meaning in the individual words that sort of gets lost along the way. So we just kind of have to understand there's no such thing as a perfect Bible translation. As well, language is a moving target. Vocabulary and words change over time, or at least the meaning of the words change over time. So I think it's really important for us to understand that something that may have been a wonderful translation a few generations ago may not be such a great translation today, because I said before, language is a moving target. When it comes to English Bible translations, and look, this is really what we're talking about. One of the things that blesses me about our time together, of course, I'm speaking English here. It's the only language that I have mastery over. Well, at least something approaching mastery. When it comes to English Bible translation, I'm not talking about Bible translations of other languages, but here are some thoughts. First of all, my preferred translation is the New King James Version. The New King James Version is a Bible translation that was developed in the late 1970s, early 1980s by the Thomas Nelson Company, a Bible publisher, a Christian publisher. And basically, it was meant to be a very legitimate, a scholarly, strong update of the King James Version. That's my preferred translation, and it has been since the 1980s. Look, I've got a verse-by-verse -verse commentary throughout the entire Bible. It's based on the text of the New King James Version. Now, today, a lot of people like the ESV version. By the way, here's one of my New King James Version Bibles. 
This is uh, called a preaching thing. The words are a little bit bigger. It's nice. This is the Bible that I normally preach from if I'm going to preach through a Bible. There's a lot of people who also find this Bible translation, the ESV, to be very helpful. ESV stands for English Standard Version. And what a lot of people like about the English Standard Version is that, um, again, it's easy to understand. It's well-written. Let me tell you something. I find that the ESV is so close to the New King James that I don't find any real reason to prefer the ESV. And therefore, I'm going to stick with what I've stuck with for the last 40-some years. That is the New King James translation. Look, I think that there is value in sticking to a Bible translation, um, maybe not from the very beginning. Let me explain. The first Bible that I ever had, reaching over this now, was uh, this edition of the Living Bible. Uh, I received one of these copies of the Bible uh, when I gave my life to the Lord on an Easter Sunday when I was 13 years old at a place called Raincross Square in Riverside, California. Greg Laurie was preaching on an Easter Sunday evening service. Uh, I came forward because I wanted to put my faith in Jesus Christ and receive what he had to give to, had to give to me for eternal life and what I could give to him for surrendering my life. And uh, an addition just like this is what they put in my hand. Now, that's just a New Testament. Very soon, I bought, and the first entire Bible that I bought, something very 70s looking, called The Way, uh, and The Way isn't a particular Bible translation, it's just an edition of the Living Bible. Now, I started out reading the Living Bible, which is not so much a Bible translation, it's what we might call a paraphrase of the Bible. Now, a lot of people don't use the Living Bible today. There's something that's replaced it, at least for a lot of people, that I think is much better. It's called the New Living Translation. And look, I, I don't have an easy edition of the New Living Translation around here. I looked around for a bit, and I, I don't know where my particular copy is. But I think, Kim, that is an excellent Bible translation for beginners, the New Living Translation. It is a legitimate translation. I wouldn't call it a paraphrase, but at the same time, I think it's a good translation. Again, I, I want to emphasize, there is no perfect Bible translation. There just isn't. But there are ones that are better than others, and some of it has to do with personal preference. So, Kim, the Bible translation I would recommend to you is the New Living Translation. However, if you read the New King James Version just fine, then read that. Because I think it's a little bit better, um, but the phrasing and the vocabulary of the New Living Translation, I think, is a, at least a little bit more understandable. Um, if you want to compare, go to a Bible site such as blb.org. That's the good folks at Blue Letter Bible. Go to blb.org and just look up the same passage in the New King James Version and in the New Living Translation and compare them and just see which um, is more understandable, which is more accessible to you. And I think that's a good way to do it. Now, let me give a little bit of a warning. There are some bad Bible translations, or maybe we would say at least 
questionable Bible translations. Now, I believe that there's a lot of good Bible translations out there. Among the good ones, I would say definitely the New King James Version. The King James Version is an excellent Bible translation. Listen, I tell people all the time that if you're going to be a serious student of the Bible, you need to read through the King James Version at least once from Genesis to Revelation. The reason why I say this is because for hundreds of years, the standard Bible in the English language was the King James Version. And there are so many Bible resources and references that refer back to the King James Version that if you are not conversant with how the King James Version speaks and how it phrases things, you're going to go over in reading different Bible resources passages where they quote the King James Version, and you don't even know it because you're not familiar with it. So the King James Version is great. I prefer the New King James Version. The ESV is good. The NIV, especially in its earlier versions, I think is good. Uh, the Revised Standard Version is good. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, I know some people like that, and I think it's a good, reliable translation. There's a lot of good Bible translations out there, no mistake about it, but there are some bad ones. Let me show you a couple bad Bible translations. Here is a bad Bible translation. This is the New World Translation. This is a translation done by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, otherwise known as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Folks, bad Bible version, bad translation. They deliberately mistranslate and distort many passages of Scripture that uh, go against their peculiar and heretical doctrines, such as the fact that Jesus Christ is God. So, bad Bible translation, avoid it. Um, another bad Bible translation is the Passion Translation. Now, folks, I, I don't have one of these to show you, but there's a translation out there that's at least getting some traction in the Christian world called the Passion Translation. It's not good. I recommend to you highly the work by Mike Winger. Matter of fact, maybe we'll put that uh, link in the description of this video. A link to Mike Winger's videos where he does a deep dive on the Passion Translation and does an excellent job of fairly, that's one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about my brother Mike Winger. He's very fair in his treatments. Um, he just exposes fairly, I believe, why the Passion Translation is such a bad translation. I do not recommend in any way the New World Translation, the Passion Translation, and then let me give you one that, please understand me, I'm not saying that this next Bible translation is bad, I'm just saying that it's questionable and needs to be held in proper perspective, and that would be the Message Translation by Eugene Peterson. Now, I know some people who really regard this as heretical and bad. I just want to say that what I think it needs to be done is properly understood. I don't regard this as a Bible translation at all. I regard it as a commentary. And if you're interested in Eugene Peterson's commentary on the Bible, well, then by all means, read the message. But understand that's what you're getting. 
it, it really isn't, in my perspective, I'm sure there's some people who disagree with this, but in my perspective, it's really not a valid Bible translation. It's really much, much better understood as a commentary on the biblical text. And if you just read it, keeping that in mind, as you would for any other Bible commentator, well, then you'll sift through things and not accept things as being good and necessarily reliable translations from the original Greek and Hebrew text. Again, I want to emphasize, understand that no Bible translation is perfect. So understand the different strengths and weaknesses of the translations that you would like to use. A couple more things. <laughs> the best Bible translation, okay, th throwing out the bad ones, like the New World Translation, throwing out the bad translations. The best Bible translation is the one you will actually read. Look, if you want to tell me all day long that uh, the ESV is the best Bible translation, nothing compares to it, and that's the one you really think is great and everybody should use it, but you don't actually read it, then it's not a good translation for you. If you would read the New Living Translation instead of the ESV, then the one you will actually read is a better Bible translation. So, best Bible translation, the one you'll actually read, but what are some good Bible translations for a new believer or a beginner to the Christian faith? Again, this was Kim's question, and I would simply answer it like this, the New Living Translation or the New King James Version. All right, so Kim, thanks again for your question. Glad you asked it. Let me go over now to uh, the questions that have come in on the live chat. I do want to say once again that today we're doing a giveaway. A giveaway feels like all I'm doing in today's Q&A is holding up books in front of you. But uh, we're going to give away this print commentary on the Gospel of John. It's my own work. Uh, I do want to emphasize again, it's the same content that you'll find uh, online, but it is in a nice print edition. If you want to be entered into just the random drawing we're going to do for one of our live viewers, sorry if you're watching this recorded, catch us live next time, and maybe you can enter this when we have one of these. Uh, all you have to do is subscribe to our YouTube channel, tell us where you're viewing from, and hang around for the end of the program because that's when we're going to announce who our winner is, and we need your information so that we know who to send it to. We, we can't tell who to send it to just from your screen name. Okay, let me get to the questions that have come in on the side chat. Thanks very much for your patience with that. I want to begin with the question from Junebug, who says, Will everyone who makes it to heaven through faith in Jesus here... Well done, good and faithful servant. Junebug, that's a great question. To be honest, it's a question I haven't specifically considered before. So let me give you my impression. My first impression would simply to be say, no. There are believers that the New Testament describes. They are believers. They are destined for heaven. But they will be saved by the skin of their teeth. There are also some believers who, seemingly, according to the New Testament, uh, 
sin in a way that sort of ends their youthfulness on earth, and God, certainly not themselves, but God brings them home to heaven. In other words, not every person who makes it to heaven will cross the finish line gloriously. Not everyone who makes it to heaven will be, in fact, a good and faithful servant. Um, Some people will, so to speak, barely make it. So what do we do with this? Well, um, we recognize that the Bible says that there will be what is called the judgment seat of Christ. Actually, those who at the end of the age, we will, as believers, stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, and what we have done or not done for God in this world will be judged accordingly. And so uh, my first answer, I mean, I I suppose I could be talked out of this if somebody has a good counter argument to it, uh, because we're not specifically told in the scriptures, everyone will or everyone won't hear those words. But my first reaction is no, there, there will be some who are barely saved. Now, let me say, of course, it's better to be barely saved and to make it to heaven than to not make it to heaven at all. Of course, it's infinitely better. But we should recognize that at least from time to time, the scriptures do motivate us by um, the idea of reward and honoring God and a reward waiting for us in heaven. So again, I, I just want to emphasize, Junebug, I think that's a great question. Thank you for asking that one. Uh, Jackie asked this question. My husband is into extraterrestrials and believes that they're in the Bible. Are extraterrestrials referred to in the Bible? Okay, well, Jackie, um, I would say this. No, extraterrestrials are not mentioned in the Bible, except if someone wants to consider angelic or demonic beings as being extraterrestrials. Now, in a sense, angels and demons, which we could lump under that general heading of angelic beings, because we would say that a a demon is a fallen angel, but angelic beings, whether they are faithful or fallen, they are, in a sense, beings from another dimension, another existence, and they come and interact in our world. Now, beyond that, we have no evidence of extraterrestrials uh, on Earth or in the universe, uh, biblically speaking. So the Bible doesn't make any mention of such beings. There are some people who think that uh, modern encounters with extraterrestrials are actually encounters with demonic beings, uh, beings from another dimension, and all calculated to deceive for some purpose of Satan. I'll, I'll allow that that's certainly a possibility. It's not something I want to get into right now. So I would just say that the Bible makes no mention of extraterrestrials, beings that live on other planets or other parts of the universe, unless we want to consider angelic beings, whether they be faithful or the fallen, to be extraterrestrials in themselves. So 
we can say, uh, except for angels and demons, this is something that the Bible is just silent about. Okay, next question comes from John. John asks this question. How do you balance a relationship with God and the study of the scripture? <laughs> well, John, um, it's kind of funny. The way you ask that question, my immediate answer is to say there is no balance between them because they're not at differing ends of the spectrum. You know, you think of something being balanced, it's balanced along a line, and you got one weight here and another weight here, and they sort of balance along a line. That's not how I think of my study of the scriptures. My study of the scriptures is very much part, it's a very vital, living, exciting part of my um, relationship with God. I never get tired of talking about this, but one of the reasons why I love studying the Bible so much is because it is in my study of the Bible that I experience deep fellowship with God. Now, I'm not trying to say that that's the only place where I experience deep fellowship with God. I can experience deep fellowship with God in prayer, in uh, worship, in hearing the Word of God preached, in uh, the receiving of communion, the Lord's table, um, in just my own, you know, personal time with the Lord. So there are many different ways, but my own time in the scriptures is a deep and meaningful way that I, in fact, fellowship with God. Now, it is possible for a person to become so concerned or consumed with what we might call merely the academic study of the Word of God, that they really give no place for a vital, real relationship with God. And this has always been a problem. It was a problem in the days of Jesus the Messiah. Let's not forget that the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders who for the most part opposed Jesus and his mission, there were a few exceptions, of course, wonderful exceptions, but for the most part, the scribes and the Pharisees who resisted the mission of Jesus in the days of Jesus, these were men who knew the Bible forwards and backwards. But they didn't really know God, because if they would have known God, they wouldn't have rejected the perfect representation of God that is Jesus Christ himself. So it's possible for somebody to pursue such a detached um, pursuit of knowing the Bible that they miss the God of the Bible, but it doesn't have to be that way. I hope I've explained myself for you there, John. Um, my time in God's Word is of rich and wonderful benefit, and I hope the same could be true for you as well. Uh, in a way, that's part of what I do with my whole life and my ministry. Uh, the effort I make in writing and making available my commentary throughout the whole Bible and making it available in many different languages, it's really towards that end not to create a bunch of Bible experts, but really to bring people into meaningful fellowship with God in and through his word. Jesus meets me in his word, 
And I, I want other people to experience that as well. Okay, let me go on to the next question that comes from Tunal Banan. Uh, that's Mr. or Mrs. Subway. They're from uh, Sweden. Should we as Christians celebrate Halloween or is that holiday satanic and should be avoided? Okay, um, I would say this. There are undeniable, dark, and occult, and if you want to say satanic, connections to Halloween. And for that reason, there are many believers who will have nothing to do with it in any way. However, we must admit that the modern um, celebration of Halloween has little or nothing to do with those occult or satanic or dark connections. Certainly, you can find people who commemorate Halloween in a dark, occult, satanic way. But for many people, especially families, Halloween is about pumpkins and candy and dressing up in a costume. I think that the uh, origins of Halloween and many of the modern practices of Halloween are distinct enough to where I believe this is a matter left up to the individual Christian conscience. I, I don't think we can compel. I would not, as a pastor, compel somebody one way or another. I certainly wouldn't say you must celebrate Halloween, God forbid, but neither would I exercise church discipline on somebody who did exercise Halloween, as if you could say, I'll exercise church discipline on somebody who practices some satanic ritual. That would be somebody unrepentant of that, uh, that's liable for church discipline, maybe even eventually um, casting out of the church, excommunication from that particular church body. So I believe that there's enough variation between the two that this is a matter left up to the individual Christian conscience. And I would just simply say, believers, seek the Lord. Father, God's appointed you as a priest in your family, as a head of your home. Then seek the Lord and you make a decision before him as to whether or not God would allow you to do it. And if you feel God gives you the permission to do it, then just celebrate it. Uh, mark Halloween in a way that is detached from any of its occult or, you know, satanic or or dark associations uh, from its origin. I think that can be done. Uh, so this is a matter of Christian conscience, not something I think that we can bind other believers regarding. Now, I don't mind Christians making a passionate case for this is why I think we should not commemorate Halloween anyway. If somebody wants to make that argument, fine, but ultimately it's going to be up to the individual believer. That's my perspective on it. I'm sure people have a lot of other different perspectives. Okay, let me go to the next question from uh, Anna Hui. Please forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong there. I'm just reading it quickly off the thing. Anna Hui asks this, what does Genesis 24, verse 2 mean, where he talks about placing his hand under Abraham's thigh? Well, Anahui, this, in the minds of some commentators, because I, I would say the opinion of Bible commentators on this is not universal, but according to some commentators, this was a vow made 
uh, where Abraham's servant would make the vow with his hand actually reaching underneath Abraham in some position, either symbolically or literally, and placing his hand on or near, I'm using a terminology, sorry, on the, the testicles of Abraham. I know we read this, we go, good heavens, how could I say such a thing? Well, again, that's because what some commentators believe regarding this. But let me just clear this up. The reason why some people think such a vow would be made is because it was connected very much to the descendants of Abraham, what you might call the seed of Abraham. And since it had a procreative uh, association, this vow, it was connected with the procreative ability of Abraham. Now, I, I want to stress to say, by no means is that a universally accepted understanding of that passage, but I would say that um, it probably has more going for it than many other understandings of the passage. That seems to be, as far as I can tell, the best sense of it. It obviously recognized a very solemn, serious vow, but one um, connected with the potential descendants of Abraham, and that's why the vow would be made in that manner. Whether it was an actual touching of that particular part of Abraham's body or a symbolic reference to it, I think it's more likely that it was a symbolic reference to it. But, you know, again, there are just many things that belong to the ancient world that seem strange to us, but were part and parcel of the ancient world. Hope that answers that for you there. Anahui. Victoria asks this question, uh, what's the best way for a beginner to learn the meaning of scripture for Bible study? Well, Victoria, you, I don't know if it's good or bad that you've asked me this question, because my answer is going to be right up front. Victoria, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible, and there are many everyday Christians who just use it as part of their Bible reading. They'll read uh, a chapter from the Bible, then they'll go to my commentary at EnduringWord.com. You can also find it at uh, Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. I'm one of many different Bible commentators on that site. They'll read a chapter from the Bible, then they'll go to my commentary and read through it again. And it just helps them get understanding. There are many everyday Christians. We get, we get wonderful emails, uh, sometimes even from teenagers, young teenagers, who are just grateful for the Bible resources that we offer. They're clear, they're easy to understand, but at the same time, I believe that they take the Bible seriously enough so that it's a benefit even to those who are well-studied in the Scriptures and have been pastors or preachers or Bible teachers for many decades. So, use a good Bible commentary. And of course, since it's me, I would recommend to my own Bible commentary that you can get absolutely free online. By the way, I do want to remind everybody that today we're going to give away one of my print commentaries, this verse-by-verse uh, -verse study through the Gospel of John. If you want one of these, subscribe. Let us know where you're viewing from. This is just for our live viewers, of course. And then thirdly, hang around for the end because it's going to be in the last 10 minutes or so that we announce the winner for this. But in any regard, I just want you to know, uh, Victoria, that that's an excellent way. Now, some people are better audio learners. 
And so it's helpful for you to either watch a YouTube video going through the scriptures or listen to a podcast or a recorded teaching. For example, on this very same YouTube channel that you're watching this from, uh, I have a verse-by-verse study through the book of Psalms. And that verse-by-verse study uh, is available right now. Uh, I think right now we're in the midst of Psalm 119 and just releasing a bit each week, and we'll probably be releasing these studies uh, well for another several more months. Um, But if you wanted to just walk through good verse-by-verse teaching, then Victoria, that's a great way for you to just kind of learn how to look at the scriptures, observe what they say, interpret what it says according to good interpretive rules, and then um, apply it to your life. Thank you for that question, Victoria. Let me go on to the next question from Barry. Uh, Do you think that the New Testament was originally written in Hebrew prior to being written in Greek? Barry, I can give you a very simple answer to that. No. I believe there is virtually no evidence for that. And the kind of evidence I would be looking for is a early, and of course this would be a very early, manuscript of a New Testament book in Hebrew. But we just don't find these. We have virtually zero manuscript evidence for that theory. Now, there may be one exception to that, that there's a little bit of evidence. Well, I wouldn't call it strong, but at least there's a little bit of evidence for this. There are people that believe that Hebrews was a sermon preached by Paul the Apostle, in Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic, that Luke translated into Greek. Maybe. There's no way of really knowing. But the idea that the entire New Testament was written in Hebrew, book by book, through the decades of the first century, and then translated into Greek, there's just virtually no evidence for that supposition, such as manuscript evidence or even evidence from church tradition or or teaching. Uh, Very little evidence for that. Okay, let me continue on. Uh, Dahlia asks, Since demons have possessed people, as seen in the Bible, it seems that the devil is not bound to respect our free will. Does God say more on this matter in his word to us? Does Satan have a leash? Well, Dahlia, let me say this. Definitely, Satan has a leash. Satan cannot do whatever he wants to. There are boundaries given to the activity of Satan by the sovereignty of God, and Satan can only operate within those boundaries. So the devil is not God. May I say that again? The devil is not God, and he can't do whatever he pleases. That's just the simple truth of the matter. So, Um, The other thing to understand is this, is that we don't really know what exactly can or cannot open up a door to demonic possession. Look, let's just be honest. The scriptures aren't clear on this. There are many things that people suggest. Uh, People suggest that, you know, occult activity, satanic worship, um, 
sometimes thought to be harmless things like Ouija boards or tarot cards. Uh, some people think that demons can gain an open door by associate associations with others who are demon possessed. Sometimes people think that there's trauma that can be inflicted on a person that opens up a door to the demonic. Uh, people think that drug use can be a door to the demonic. These things are suggestions. We really don't have firm biblical evidence that declares this to be so. So, um, uh, yes, Satan is definitely on a leash, and no, we don't know with clarity and certainty how and why, what causes, so to speak, uh, demonic possession. Hope that's helpful for you there, Dolly. I mean, there are summations, and look, with some, isn't it better for people to be safe? Look, if you are an unbeliever, you don't believe in Jesus Christ at all, you have not surrendered, you haven't put your faith in him and repented of your sins, you don't even know if there is a God. Hey, if you are a complete, not yet believer, listening to me right now, I would still tell you, don't get involved with occultic things. Don't get involved with drugs. Don't get involved with uh, things that are associated with the demonic realm because you may be opening up doors to demonic possession that you don't intend to open at all. Now, I can't say that's serious. I can't say, well, if a person does this, they certain to get demon possession. I can't say that, but um, these are things that I think at least create a risk for demonic possession. And that's a risk that no one... Um, really should take at all, of course. Okay, Lynette asks this question. Does the Bible say anything about the destiny of those who have deathbed salvation experiences? Well, Lynette, certainly it says something about their destiny. It says that they're going to heaven. Okay, Lynette, consider this. There is one deathbed conversion in the Bible. Properly speaking, one deathbed conversion. And I would regard that one deathbed conversion to be the thief on the cross. It was the thief on the cross who, you know, in the last hour, whatever, of his life, called out to Jesus and said, Lord, receive me when you come into your kingdom. And uh, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He went to the same heaven that somebody who served Jesus faithfully for 80 years goes to. Now, we may not say that's fair, but it's a marvel of God's grace. And to get back to a question that we discussed earlier today, maybe that has to do with a believer who really has no reward, um, or very little reward in heaven, in any regard. There is one clear deathbed conversion in the Bible, and that man went to the same heaven that everybody else goes to. Now, I will say this, everybody else who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, of course. I like what I read in one older commentator. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was Adam Clark. Maybe it was John Trapp, Matthew Poole. I don't know. Sometimes I get some of those older guys mixed up. He said this, there is one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would presume. In other words, hey, if there's only one, don't assume that you're going to, don't put off salvation until your deathbed. Hey, there's only one of them in the Bible. So there's only one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would presume, but 
There is one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no one would despair. So friends, don't presume if you're on your deathbed, excuse me, before you ever approach your deathbed, put your faith in Jesus Christ now. Repent of your sin. Turn away from sin and self and put your faith in Jesus Christ, in who he is and what he did, especially what he did at the cross and in his resurrection to pay the penalty you deserved and to set you free from the powers of darkness and fear. Put your faith in Jesus Christ today. Don't wait till your deathbed. But if, and I understand this is unlikely, but let's just say it's a scenario. If someone was listening to me right now at this moment from their deathbed, I would say you can trust in Jesus Christ today and be saved. So I hope that answers that for you there, um, Lynette. Luciana asks this question, how can we share the gospel to an atheist? What do they believe happens after they die? Well, Luciana, I would say that virtually every atheist, their answer to the question, what happens after you die, is just simply, there is nothing. You cease existence. There is no life after death. I can't think of a single atheist I would know who believes in life after death. Um, maybe if somebody believed in some kind of reincarnation apart from God, but I think most everybody who believes in reincarnation believes in some kind of God. So an atheist believes that when a person dies, that's it. There is nothing beyond this life. And there's a very real sense in which that means this life is meaningless, and this life is fundamentally unjust. There is no ultimate justice in the universe. Because if there is no life after this life, if there is no final judgment of God and settling of all things according to his righteousness, then the terrible abuser in this life who dies without ever having to pay the full penalty of what he inflicted upon others, that person gets away with it in every sense. What a terrible thing to think about. No, anybody who loves justice should believe in God and believe in the concept of life after death. And how you would share the gospel with us. Um, they may not believe in God, but you do. And you just speak to them very naturally about your own faith and about what the Bible says about the God who really is. Um, we sometimes feel like we have to change everything about what we believe or what we speak when we speak to somebody who believes differently than we believe. And more often than not, really what we just need to do is just share our faith openly, enthusiastically, and uh, let them see the light that shines within us. Hope that helps you there, Luciana. Wences, maybe it's Vences, asks this question. Uh, why do you think more people are holding to the post-rapture view today? Well, Wences, uh, I think what you say may be the case. I don't know if I have firm evidence of it, but I think what you say may very well be the case, that more people today believe in a post-tribulation, catching away or rapture of the church uh, theories or understandings today. 
Um, and if we just assume that it's true, I think that these things come into fashion and come out of fashion. Therefore, we shouldn't believe these things based on fashion or based on just because somebody else teaches it. We should do our own research. Listen, I can tell you many notable Bible scholars who believe in the positions I believe in when it comes to, you know, the end times, eschatology, the last things. They believe what I believe about the millennium. They believe what I believe about the catching away of the church. They believe what I believe about the nature and the existence of the kingdom of God on this earth. However, I would not say that I believe in these things because those people believe them. Um, I'd like to think that to the best of my imperfect ability, I've gone to the scriptures myself and tried to discern and understand what they say and come to the conclusions that I have. So some of these things are cyclical in nature. Um, you know, things just ebb and flow in popularity. That's why we shouldn't uh, base our beliefs on such things based on their present popularity. All right, let me go on to the next question from Tim says, um, hold on, before I do that, Tim, I'll get to your question in just a moment. This is your last chance, folks. Last chance to put your name in. We want you to subscribe. We want you to put your name in and tell us, not your, your screen name is enough. What we need is you to subscribe. We need, of course, your screen name, which is already on there from the live chat. And we need to know where you're from. And we need you to hang around just another five minutes or so, and we're going to have a winner for you. It's just going to be in a few moments that we cut this off and we randomly select our winner for the commentary today. Uh, let me get to the last question here from Tim. Tim says, do you think there was divine intervention in Portugal uh, by the Virgin Mary where miracles occurred known as the miracle of Fatima? Tim, okay, I I'm going to speak admittedly as someone who's not done a lot of research on this. So if I did a lot of research, maybe my opinion would be different. Maybe it would be stronger or different in one way or another. But my immediate response to this is simply this. No, I don't believe. I, I don't believe that it would be within the purpose and plan of God for such continued appearances of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to appear on earth. I think that these are often distractions that lead to idolatry of Mary, the mother of Jesus, whom personally I would not refer to as the Virgin Mary because I don't believe that she remained a virgin. I believe that Jesus had brothers and sisters. I think that's what the scriptures clearly state. Now, certainly she was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and that was done by a miracle of God, not by the normal process of people having babies. Uh, but I do not believe that she remained a virgin the rest of her life. Um, I don't think the scriptures teach that. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, has been made on the part of many people an idol. Now, I certainly wouldn't accuse every Roman Catholic of idolatry when it comes to Mary, but certainly it has been a problem among some Roman Catholics, and it's something to address, and I think that that's what gives me a skepticism regarding 
these appearances that people talk about, whether they be um, Fatima or some of the other ones that have been mentioned uh, in history. Okay, uh, pretty soon, as soon as I get some word, um, hey, today's winner is Anahui in Newport, Washington. Uh, I'm going to sign this and send this out to you in the next day or two. You'll get it via priority mail. Congratulations, Anahui. Again, if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly, please forgive me. And uh, I'll be very pleased to send you this. And uh, I'm glad you could view in. And I hope that we can do this many more times. Give away these things. Because you are in the uh, United States. I can actually sign this for you. Our international winners, when we do this in the future, I'm sorry, I won't be able to sign those. So again, I think that's it for the questions that we have today. I do want to thank our TWR a Trans World Radio 360 audience. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank the many people who have submitted such great questions for today and made our time together good. I want to uh, congratulate Anahui. And let me say, Anahui, you need to email us. I'm sure Devin's already speaking to you in the side chat. You need to email us and let us know your postal address so we know where to send this. So please do that. And... Uh, I want to thank all the people who generously support the work we do at Enduring Word. You know, we make these Bible resources, this commentary throughout the whole Bible, available completely free in English, in other languages, as we have a very extensive translation work going on right now. Um, we make these Bible resources free, uh, but it's only because people support the work. They support the ministry. And if you ever did have an interest in that, just go to the website. Of course, there's a donate button there. Um, but don't feel obligated. I only want people to support if they feel uh, truly led of the Holy Spirit to do that. Uh, because God provides. He's provided for us wonderfully so far. And I believe for the continuing work that God has for us to do, he will continue to supply through the generosity of his people. So once again, thank you so much for joining us today. So glad you could be with us. And we hope to see you another time when we do our live question and answer on a Thursday afternoon. God bless you, and thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.